everyone, and welcome back to Conversations with BC Hepatitis Network. My name is Carrie, and I'm joined again by Daryl, and Daryl is going to introduce our guest for today. Thanks, Carrie. Today we have Naveed Janjua with the BCCDC with us. And Naveed, can you tell us briefly about your role at uh, BCCDC? Thank you, Daryl and Carrie. So my role at BCCDC, I have been playing like multiple roles. So uh, with respect to hepatitis, so I have been senior scientist with uh, BCCDC since 2013 and working on hepatitis surveillance and programming in the province. My most recent role is um, I'm executive director of data analytics services at BCCDC. And in that role, I'm responsible for data and surveillance for various uh, diseases uh, within BCCDC. Great. Excellent. So what brought you to the work that you do? So very interesting question. So when I was doing my medical training um, long time ago, um, I used to see patients, um, and, and this was like when I was doing internal medicine, uh, we used to see patients with uh, end-stage liver disease, like decompensated cirrhosis, and the entire night would go in managing uh, like uh, someone in coma and getting their condition deteriorated. And that inspired me to look into why so many people are developing um, cirrhosis and decompensated cirrhosis and um, hepatitis. And that led me into the journey to uh, explore the risk factors and reasons for hepatitis acquisition. And this was in Pakistan. And we figured out that uh, unsafe medical injections are one of the key reasons for transmission of um, hepatitis C in Pakistan. And that is where like, I led some of the studies to investigate um, how many injections are being administered, why these injections are being received or administered, both from the provider's perspective as well as from the client's perspective. What are some of the perceptions, why people uh, want injection or whether these are people don't want injection, but it's a provider who want to administer injections and so on. So uh, I led a series of studies um, in collaboration with uh, WHO at that time and, and have been doing work in prevention of uh, hepatitis and unsafe medical injections since then. And when I moved to Canada uh, and, and in 2013, I got opportunity to come back to hepatitis-related work in, uh, in Canada. And that's where like, I started looking at building surveillance system for hepatitis in British Columbia and leading research and programming uh, to achieve hepatitis elimination. Is that mode of transmission something that, that you see in Canada today or in the last 10 to 15 years or longer? So uh, we don't see transmission related to medical procedures or injections in Canada or any other developed country per se, except for few instances of break in infection control. Infection control practices in developed countries are very robust. And in some instances, you might have heard like uh, endoscope was not properly clean and that led to an outbreak or, or at least investigation and so on. But we don't hear about that. But the example that would be similar to this one was before screening for hepatitis C and became available. Um, blood was not screened for hepatitis C, and that's where like a lot of people acquired infection 
uh, especially those who received um, uh, blood and poor blood products during that time. But that is very long time ago. Uh, other than that, like infection control practices in developed countries are quite robust. Is it still a problem globally? It is a huge problem globally. Uh, unsafe medical injections are still a problem. And beyond that, like um, break in infection control practices and unsafe procedures is still a, a major problem. And that has been the major contributing factor for most of the global burden of hepatitis, yeah. uh, where we have like large number of infections, whether we call it Egypt, whether we call it Pakistan or other places. There has been a lot of work uh, that was done over the past um, few years, and, and there have been a lot of improvements, but still there is transmission that is associated with unsafe medical procedures. So in more developed countries, there, there are really other modes such as where harm reduction is not practiced, et cetera. Exactly. In developed countries, it's mainly related to um, uh, unclean needles, related to substance use. But in developing countries, it's mainly related to unsafe medical injections. So how did you choose to go into infectious disease work? I'm always just curious about how physicians end up choosing a specialization through that, that path. Well, I um, highlighted at the beginning, like my kind of like um, interest in infection diseases, infectious diseases was back through um, hepatitis work that I I witnessed in Pakistan when I was doing my internal medicine training. And then when I started to explore transmission of hepatitis through unsafe medical injections. And, you know, it was surprising for me to see that in some of the rural areas, and this was around 2000, 2003, 2005, we, we saw clinics where um, there were still people using glass syringes and not sterilizing them um, they were they were put in these um, or water baths which used to uh, sterilize, but they were kind of like so called like you would dip your hand in and and you'll be fine. So so these were not sterilized, and and then like people would be reusing disposable syringes and that prepared me to well, we could do something about transmission of hepatitis, and and it's not only hepatitis. At that time, we had um, very low incidence of HIV. And it was concentrated in specific population groups, like mainly among uh, people who injected drugs uh, in, in urban areas. Uh, and but there was a risk like you have if that spillover happens from people who inject drugs into general population, and uh, that could happen through these unsafe medical procedures, because that is where everybody is going for receiving care. And 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 that led to some of the outbreaks of HIV um, in some of the rural areas in Pakistan, where they found that lapse in infection control practices and some of these clinics led to transmission of HIV. And that was mostly due to a lack of knowledge and or resources, I suppose. And in those exactly, areas. it's it's both it's lack of knowledge at the um, patient and as well as at the provider, and in terms of implications. Like what would be the impact on individuals' health and an impact on the broader society down the line? And of course, resources is one of the key issue mm -hmm. in terms of reuse of syringes and uh, sterilization of other medical equipment. Thanks, Naveed. Um, can you tell us about your current work 
at BCCDC? So the current work is focused on mainly trying to see how we could achieve elimination. And one of the cornerstone around that is trying to get the more comprehensive data on seeing where we are in the cascade of care um, uh, in terms of eliminations, overall care cascade, but for various population groups within BC, because that will help us to see where gaps are and how we could address some of these gaps, uh, whether it's the um, gap between uh, antibody diagnosis to RNA testing or treatment initiation or reinfection or so on, or um, there may be gap related to um, where when people were diagnosed very long time ago, and then uh, they were not followed up and, and they, they still don't know whether they have infection or not. And, and there could be a significant number of people within that category. Those would be the group that uh, we often refer to as lost to care. Exactly. So these are people who um, we, we refer them as lost to care because they were diagnosed a long time ago. And then at that time, treatments were not very good. So there was, wasn't a kind of impetus to bring them back actively to engage them in care and treatment. Uh, and they're not linked with care from that point of view. So that is a group that needs to be brought back to have them uh, tested for their infection. And then if they need treatment, then need, they should be treated. What would be the main barrier to actually reaching that population or others for that matter? Barriers to reaching populations depend on type of population. So let's say like if we talk about people who were diagnosed a long time ago. Um, so since hepatitis is a, uh, is a silent infection and, uh, and it's not doing anything until it reaches a certain stage, and that kind of like um, makes it difficult for people if they are not in regular contact with their healthcare provider or seeking care. And then on the other hand, it's also to healthcare providers, whether they are actively assessing overall health of patients. The way our system is structured, um, when you go to a family physician, they only take care of the complaints that you are currently presenting to them. And that is only a single complaint most of the time. They're not looking at a person holistically. For example, if someone has hepatitis in the background, and that varies by, from provider to provider. And um, usually it may not be looked after, and that kind of like drags on. And there could be competing priorities from the uh, patient's point of view. There are other needs or uh, issues that they want to get dealt with. And then, of course, from the provider's point of view, whether they are actively looking for hepatitis and getting treated uh, among these individuals who got diagnosed in the past and and uh, need to be reconnected with care. Have you seen recently, I guess, a shift in newer physicians who maybe have been trained differently or have, you know, just a, a different perspective on uh, preventative medicine and testing. Have you seen any shift uh, in recent years with newer physicians around hepatitis testing for patients? I'm not sure whether I would be able to answer that okay, accurately, fair. but one, one thing that I, I do see that, and when we were kind of like working with um, providers as well as looking at the data. 
So the most of the focus for testing is based on presence of a risk factor, like substance use um, or unsafe uh, sexual practices and so on. And in fact, like when we were doing some work with uh, immigrants from South Asia, like Pakistan, India, uh, people were not tested. Like they are coming from countries where prevalence of infection is high, but they were not offered testing because most of physicians feel that transmission is related to um, uh, injection drug use or unsafe sexual practice. And that's where like they, they focus on rather than looking at other population groups who may have acquired infection uh, outside of these practices. We talked about uh, unsafe medical procedures or people who acquired infection in the past who may not remember whether they had any um, episodes of recreational injection drug use in the past or may have acquired through some of the medical procedures when um, uh, screening was not available. So, so these are some of the things that, um, that are overlooked, uh, although in some of the recent guidance documents that BCCDC prepared, we emphasized some of these factors so that physicians are uh, reminded to look for other population groups outside, outside of these traditional risk factors to screen them to diagnose infection at an earlier stage. Does stigma play a role, you think, Naveed? Uh, yeah, stigma, of course, plays, plays a role, especially people who uh, have been injecting in the past, so they may not be kind of like um, feeling comfortable to come forward and say like, well, I, I may have injected or, or did it recreationally when I was young. So, so that is kind of like uh, an issue that um, would play a role here. Yeah, that's some, something I've, I've certainly seen over the years is that particularly in an older baby boomer population that may have experimented with drugs 30, 40 years ago, uh, it's certainly not, you know, because of the stigma around uh, drug use and, and, uh, and hepatitis C, uh, because of its relationship, uh, yeah, they, they choose not to, uh, to say, to, to share. I mean, it's not something that they feel comfortable talking about. Yeah, and that's where, like, this is very important that we destigmatize discussion around substance use as well as hepatitis, and especially hepatitis, like, we have uh, wonderful drugs. So if you are able to diagnose infection at an early stage, uh, we could cure infection um, in more than 95% of people. I think I would say like 100% because you have second line therapies which could uh, treat infection in, uh, in those individuals who failed first line treatments as well. And, and that could prevent like all the complications that may come from uh, infection staying there in the body for a longer period of time. And still, that's not widely known, is, is it, Naveed, that, that it's so highly curable? Yeah, and, and not only curable, it's very short, uh, short course, like you have like eight-week to 12-week treatment with minimal to no side effects. Like those who receive treatment with interferon, they would say like, well, this is kind of like, yeah. <laughs> You cannot compare it. Like, As you know, I was one of those lucky ones who, <laughs> who did receive the yeah. therapy. No, that's great. I mean, it, it surprises me, you know, even now, it still surprises me that it's not so well known because it really is an amazing thing that we're able to cure this virus, to, to eradicate this virus in, in, in people. 
Exactly. This is an amazing thing that for a viral disease for which usually we don't have effective drugs and we have highly effective treatments and we are able to cure that disease. And, and that is kind of like, I think, led to the realization of hepatitis elimination globally, that mm -hmm. we have these tools like in terms of prevention, and then we have these tools which, which would cure. Like we don't have vaccine, but you have like such a high effective drugs like that. Um, could lead to elimination uh, a reality. So I guess on the topic of elimination, um, and, and this doesn't have to specifically speak to elimination, but what have been your greatest successes and greatest challenges throughout your work? You know, I would say that the greatest success has been using, being able to assemble data and then using that to inform policy and programming within BC, and not only in BC, but then also galvanizing that discussion uh, across Canada, and then also helping to move some of that globally as well. Uh, because data is really key and, and powerful tool that help us to understand um, where we are and where we need to go and, and how we could, we could get there. And then also monitoring uh, how we are doing with respect to reaching to that destination, like in, in this case, uh, elimination. Uh, that has been, I think, the one of the major success because drugs are available everywhere. You have programming practices and so on, but uh, data was key driver in uh, us uh, galvanizing that uh, effort. Uh, in terms of uh, barriers, there are a lot of different things. And, and uh, as, Daryl mentioned there is stigma associated with um, hepatitis. We have treated a um, large number of people, but now we are at stage where our treatment rates are declining. And one of the key challenge for us would be to keep our treatment rates to a higher level so that we are able to achieve elimination and then also prevent new infection. So, keeping treatment rate at a high level would be one of the greatest challenge. And then how we could keep that. So it's basically diagnosing people who are undiagnosed and then also linking people who are diagnosed with care. And that is like where we will have to think about like how we could make it easier through all of these steps. And that's where like the work that BC Hepatitis Network is doing is really marvelously going to communities, talking with people, working with them screening and then linking them with care. So all of these things are, I think, uh, will contribute to overcoming that challenge. There really is no one thing that's going to get us there. Is there, Naveed? No, there is no one thing. That is one of the key uh, lessons that we have to look at um, it from the multiple avenues. So uh, if there was one thing similar to like the pill, that would have been easy. <laughs> yeah. But we are making progress. I mean, there's, there's certainly reason to or cause to uh, to believe that we are making some progress. At times, it's seemingly incremental and, and small increments and even steps backwards, uh, certainly in, in our work at times and everyone's work. But we are we are moving forward. Mm -hmm. it, it certainly, you know, there there are improvements and things are changing just not fast enough, perhaps, for some of us. Yeah, like every small step counts. But again, like if we are able to 
treat large number of people quickly, we could prevent large number of um, complications or, or complications in, in large number of these people. And that's where like the whole idea is to improve um, health and well-being of uh, people. And that could be achieved if you are able to provide treatment at an early stage of infection rather than a later stage. Absolutely. Yeah. So I guess to sort of conclude, what do you see for the future? And that can be the future of the work that you're doing, uh, hepatitis in general, smaller scale, bigger scale, whatever frame through which you want to answer that question. So, you know, what I see future of hepatitis work and elimination of hepatitis work is using that approach where we provide services based on the need of particular population group whether you call it as intersectionality of factors or whether you call it as syndemic approach or whether you call it as precision public health approach everything kind of like boils down to tailoring your services and needs based on the needs of population everyone living with hepatitis c would have multiple conditions some people have more uh, co-occurring conditions and others would have less needs or less um, conditions. Like, for example, if you talk about uh, people who inject drugs, a lot of them have uh, co-occurring other infections like hepatitis B or HIV. They need social support, um, unstable, unstable housing and care for that. So that requires kind of like a comprehensive approach to provide care and social support as well as um, support for addiction and mental health. Uh, and then along with that comes the hepatitis care. So it's kind of like the overall package. When we look at baby boomer population, so a lot of people have like other co-occurring chronic conditions like cardiovascular disease or diabetes or so on. So we need to think about providing care for hepatitis as well as other conditions because we are to, or we need to think about improving overall health and well-being of the population rather than just kind of like treating hepatitis C and kind of like letting other things go or vice versa and so on. So same, like, I think the key piece for us would be to provide care according to need of population, which is tailored to where they are and, and also taking care of and thinking about their cultural needs, whether there, there are language issues, whether there are other cultural aspects. So that is really key in terms of engaging people in care, but then also providing comprehensive and compassionate care. And that will help us not only in eliminating hepatitis C, but also improving overall health and well-being of various population groups that we work with. So this would fall into the category really of health equity. Exactly. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah, I think that that concept that you mentioned of precision public health is really interesting because I think a lot of us can see public health as sort of this this blanket. And I think especially, you know, kind of in the context of people's lens on public health, at least right now, is really through that lens of COVID. Right. And and that was that was definitely kind of a one size fits all approach. And we're seeing that less now as you know, we talk in April of 2022. But it's completely true though it's not every community or not every person is going to need that same approach to how we do health promotion or how we do testing and treatment or whatever the case is right so that's really interesting and I definitely wrote that phrase down to kind of do some more googling on it later it's very broad and not targeted to most of us but of course there has to be targeted interventions otherwise it 
probably won't work very well. Has that been the approach up until COVID, though? I mean, has COVID really brought that uh, about or made that more of a thing, uh, this targeted approach? So uh, before COVID, so within hepatitis, like we were looking at the data and drilling down to um, local health areas. So our team created local health area profile, looking at demographics of population, like the kind of co-occurring conditions do they have, and then where or how a care cascade looked like for each of these local health area within BC. And the idea behind that was the concept that I described, like people living in certain area may have uh, differing needs. And that's where like, we were doing some work to try to understand, is there a way to see like you have concentration of people with certain type of needs in certain area versus other area. And if that is true, then you could locate services according to need of people. And that um, we, we provided some of these profiles to um, our, our health um, regions and within some of the regions some pilot projects were started before pandemic to kind of see how we could advance uh, hepatitis elimination uh, North Vancouver Island is one of the examples where there was work going on before pandemic. So this precision public health approach started before pandemic, but during pandemic there was, as you said, like there were blanket interventions applied to very large areas. And, and these uh, blanket interventions usually have like unintended consequences. Yeah. And that is where like, there was real realization down the line, if you see within BC, later in the pandemic, interventions or actions were more localized compared to applying it to the entire province. And that is we need to kind of like think more how we could do interventions which are tailored to the need of local area or local community, and then also population that we are working with rather than kind of like applying a blanket intervention because that may not be feasible or that may have other impacts that we would not like to see. Well, it's certainly been a, a, a part of, of our approach to uh, testing and linkage to care is, is to work in communities to actually look at, I don't like the word target so much, but uh, specific communities based on their needs. And, and, and it's, it's, it's looking at, at populations that are at high risk, of course. Yeah, exactly. That is where like, you work with communities, you understand their needs, and then tailor your work according to their needs. Yes, and that is like the idea behind co-design or learning from people who need services to provide services what they need, rather than provide services what we want. <laughs> exactly, yeah. it's really about that whole meeting people where they live, where they are. It isn't always a geographic uh, construct, but it certainly can be. I mean, it can be affected by the geography if it's isolated or, or you know, remote or or even uh, uh, suburban sometimes. Exactly. Yeah. I guess kind of a question in terms of that geography bit is, have you seen impacts of virtual care, like positively impacting people affected by hepatitis? Yeah. So based on some of the discussions with our clinical colleagues, so they, they see telemedicine as a kind of like a silver lining um, around COVID. So that kind of like spurred some of the innovations. And they were able to see patients that they were not usually able to see outside of lower mainland. And that is where, like, when we look at the data, we don't have that comprehensive data here for BC, but when we look at the data from uh, other places, like I, I reviewed some of the data from VA system in US, 
they saw a huge shift from in-person care to telemedicine. And, and that's how like we were able to maintain services during these um, COVID times and lockdowns. And we were able to kind of like continue to provide care that people needed. So I think that is one of the benefits and plus points, especially for people living in rural and remote areas. So you could provide uh, care where they are and um, the people don't have to travel like hundreds of miles to, to a clinic and waste all of that time in travel and travel and, and so on. So then you could just like provide the service where they are. Yeah, and I think that's what we've heard also here in Manitoba is just the fact that, that physicians can now phone up a patient on their normal phone, right? Rather than having to exactly. have them travel to a site for telemedicine specifically, it's, you know, travel is still travel, no matter, you know, I mean, it's better if it's closer, but if it's can be done in your home or, you know, at a local community service provider or something, that's obviously far more accessible than even having to travel two or three hours to go to a telemedicine site or something like that, right? So it's um, definitely interesting, you know, hearing perspectives, I think, especially from, from more hard to reach populations about the impacts just on the patient side of things, but from healthcare providers too, if it's easier for you to reach your patient when you need to talk to them, obviously that's a big plus. On, so, the, on the VA data, uh, Naveed, did, 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 were they able to maintain the same level of care, increase uh, or improve level of care, or did they see a reduction but not a very big reduction in the level of care? So in these studies where they were looking at <coughs> telemedicine, um, they, they saw a huge increase in telemedicine, but overall there was a disruption in care. Like when we look at the uh, overall um, uh, like number of visits or so on, so there was dis- disruption in that, but yeah. then they were able to replace some of that disruption with telemedicine. So that's how they were able to maintain some of the services. I don't think like there was, especially during the initial phase, um, it was at the same level as pre-pandemic, but um, they were able to maintain some of the services. So one thing that uh, our team is doing, and Daryl, um, we, we are working with you on that as well, to understand um, some of these impacts that had that, that pandemic had on services, like both from the provider point of view, as well as from the patient point of view, and especially looking at some of the positive and both negative aspects, like including telemedicine, to understand like whether people felt that this is the way to go forward, where it will be useful, where it won't be useful, and how we tailor and structure that so that we improve care going forward, um, but then use it in a more um, uh, kind of like a wiser fashion so that uh, needs of the people are met. Uh, rather than just kind of like using telemedicine for the sake of telemedicine, but using it to improve uh, care and services. Right. Great. Do you have any closing or kind of final thoughts that you'd like to share, Naveed? I would say like march on to hepatitis elimination. Perfect. Thank you so much. This was great. And I'm really excited to be able to share this with with our community and, uh, you know, whoever ends up listening. Yeah. Thank you very much. Thank you, Naveed. Very much appreciate you taking time out from what must be a very busy day. (laughs) It was really clear talking with you and thank you very much for your time.
Learn more about viral hepatitis and the BC Hepatitis Network by visiting bchep.org and contact us at podcasts at bchep.org. You can also find us on social media via the links in the show notes. For more episodes, visit bchep.org slash podcasts or subscribe on YouTube or your favorite podcast app.